I'd like to take a moment to thank my mom for listening to every episode. Now, my mom is the real reason you're listening to this show right now, but the sponsors have a little something to do with it as well. So I'd like to thank our sponsors too. Clio, Alert Communications, Scorpion, TimeSolve. Imagine billing day being the happiest day of the month instead of the day you dread. Nobody went to law school because they love drafting invoices for clients and chasing overdue bills. At TimeSolve, our attorneys have the tools to achieve a 97% collection rate. That means more revenue for the same work and turning billing day into happy day. Learn more about how to get to your time and billing happy place at timesolve.com. It's the Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest Matt Rotenberg, a round of balls deep. And then a three-hour potathon benefiting impoverished podcast hosts. We're giving away tote bags, people. But first, your host, Jared Correa. Yes, yes. It's the Legal Toolkit Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Perhaps surprisingly, no actual tools are involved in the making of this show. Well, except for me. That's right, I'm your host, Jared Korea. Bill Cullen was unavailable, so you're stuck with me. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys. Find us online at www.redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software, Inc. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads. You can find out more about Gideon at www.gideon.legal. Before we get to our interview today with Matt Rotenberg of Dashboard Legal, I want to take a moment to talk about the inevitable robot apocalypse. If you've followed pop culture over the last 70 years or so, you're likely familiar with the concept of the robot AI takeover. I mean, it was the plot for a freaking kids movie on Netflix last month. That was The Mitchells versus The Machines on Netflix. And I'm not going to lie, it was fucking awesome. And frankly, I'm not even sure if that's jumping the shark or simply the reaching of a saturation point. In any event, the robot takeover thing represents a pretty long catalog in TVs and movies. In Avengers, Age of Ultron, Tony Stark... Iron Man, for those of you who don't know, creates an AI that, wait for it, goes rogue. Shocking, I know. And becomes the villainous robot. Well, they're actually robot hosts, collectively named Ultron. Hence the title of the movie. In Westworld, there's a book and a movie and a TV show. And there's probably going to be another movie at some point as well. The hosts, they're called hosts, which are AI embodied in individual robots. They don't get around as much as Ultron does. They stick to one body. Eventually go rogue as well. Shocker. And kill all the humans who've, of course, abused them for years and years and years. Oh, uh, spoiler alert. In The Matrix, we are actually all living in a simulation developed through AI. But fortunately, Keanu Reeves is there to save us, just like he did in Bill and Ted 1, 2, and 3, Point Break, Speed, The Replacements, John Wick, and most of all, Toy Story 4. In Her, a Spike Jones movie, the great Joaquin Phoenix, yes, he's one of my favorite actors ever, falls in love with an AI. Uh, in his defense, it's actually Scarlett Johansson, so there's that. I guess that one's not so bad. 
But if you look at pretty much every third episode of Black Mirror, it's pretty bad. Especially Metalhead, if you've seen that one. That's the one with the creepy robot dog that looks like the one that Boston Dynamics produced in real life. You want some nightmare fuel? Watch that video on YouTube. Now, I do talk to lawyers who believe this fiction in a related genre. You know the game, the one where robots take over for all the lawyers. You've heard it before. But uh, if you're an attorney listening to this podcast and that's what you're worried about, don't be. You've got lots more realistic shit to worry about, like the deregulation of law practice and large corporations coming after your clients directly. Uh, I'll save that one for later. Now, if you're a lawyer, the robots are actually on your side. This is less an Ultron situation and more of a WALL-E situation. You remember WALL-E, the Pixar movie everybody thinks is amazing, but is actually kind of shitty? That's right, I said it. I'm the guy who hates WALL-E. In WALL-E, there's this cute little robot, and he goes around and he picks up everybody's trash. He doesn't mess with anybody. He has no grand purpose. He's like a sentient little garbage truck. And best of all, all he wants is to help us humans. That's more like the type of AI you'll see inhabiting your law practice. What Wally does is called narrow AI. He's a robot who performs a very specific task. Think of the automations you can apply in your law office today. For example, follow-up automations. Right now, literally right now, you can set up a system that will notify clients and leads about next steps and set up those next steps and stop the messaging routine when the next step is taken. So schedule an appointment, sign a document electronically, send an invoice. That is for sure a form of machine learning. And when you automate rote tasks within the law office, just what does that allow you to do? Well, you can practice at the top of your law license by only working on or marketing for high-value cases because you'll have more space and time to delegate substantive work to your staff. Plus, your staff can actually focus on more high-value work and or upskilling. So far, so good, right? No flashing red eyes, no menacing, glowering, just tiny little robots picking up pieces of trash. So look, really, the only hope you have is to run a modern and efficient law firm, and the robots will help you to do that. They're actually here to save you. Besides, I'm fairly confident that if I'm wrong about all of this and there is an AI-powered robot takeover at some point, I'll probably be dead, so I'll never know about it. Or or we will have destroyed the planet before we can even get to building AI good enough to take over the world due to our horrible environmental record catching up to us. And even if we can't ultimately avoid the AI apocalypse, those future robots are fucked anyway when the sun explodes. That's right. Suck it, Ultron. Now, before we talk to our guest, that'll be Matt Rotenberg of Dashboard Legal. We're going to talk to him about this topic, law firm productivity and whale testicles. Let's see what Josh Lennon has cooked up for you. That's right. It's the Clio Legal Trends Report Minute. Up next. Did you know that in 2020, over 50% of legal professionals worried about the success of their law firm? To think that over half of the legal service industry has experienced such duress should be raising alarms. I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer in residence at Clio. The good news is that industry data shows law firms are as busy as ever with new casework. The bad news for most lawyers is that billable earnings continue to be down by 6 to 8%. Clio's Legal Trends Report, based on data from tens of thousands of legal professionals, shows some lawyers have managed to earn $37,000 more than others. What are they doing differently? 
They've been using three key technologies, online payments, client portals, and client intake solutions. To learn more about these technologies and much more for free, download Clio's Legal Trends Report at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O. Okay, it's about time to get to the Rocky Mountain Oysters on the garnished plate that is this podcast. Let's interview our guest. My guest today is Matt Rotenberg, who is the CEO of Dashboard Legal, a unique productivity tool for law firms. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jared. It's it's great to be here, and it's it's been a long time coming. You, you were one of the first people I met on this journey. <laughs> I'm so bad with this stuff. Like we just have, we just have a, a long waiting list for guests. We're so damn popular, but I'm glad I was able to get you in. <laughs> I needed to build up some steam too before I was ready to to be one of your esteemed guests. So I'm happy that I finally earned the right today. Right. Well, yeah, I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. I've been looking forward to having it for a while as well. But I want to start off with one question I've had for a while, which is you're Matt, but you're Matt with one T, M-A-T. With one T. Now, how does something like that even happen? Yeah, I think my my parents wanted a common name, but they wanted me to be unique. So they threw in a, a little curveball and said, okay, he's going to be Matthew with one T. <laughs> there you go. Now you've got this uh, productivity tool, Dashboard Legal, and I want to get into some more generic topics, but can you talk to me about like why you decided to take the step to start a legal tech company? Because I think the founder's journey stuff is interesting and everybody's got a little bit of a different twist on that. Yeah, so... It's a great question. So it, it really started with a need and many products start with that, with a personal need. Yeah. I spent seven years practicing big law in New York City. I was Sorry working to hear on, that. No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, me too, but I've now seen the light. <laughs> I was working on these really sophisticated and intense public M&A transactions and I needed some tools to help. I was looking at all of the money pouring into the legal tech market, all of these interesting solutions, but nothing for my day-to-day to to really help me where I needed it, to get organized, to collaborate with colleagues, to reduce some of the tedium that I was experiencing in my day-to-day. And so when I saw what was on the legal tech market and I spoke with my colleagues about a tool that we would need, I was inspired to go build it myself. And so that's, that happened a little over a year ago. And you know, now we have the tool up and running and it's it's working like it should. Yeah, and I know that's not easy to do. So congratulations on getting to this point. It's tough yeah, for sure. Thanks. But lots of green fields in legal tech. There is, there is, especially in the collaboration and productivity space. Right. So let's do that now. Like I'm going to bounce around a little bit during this interview, but talk to me a little bit about your view of the state of productivity tools in legal, including where you think those tools fail a little bit. When I talk about legal productivity, I think it really falls into two buckets. It's about organization and collaboration. That's Mm -hmm. where lawyers are spending most of their time. And any tools that can facilitate those two priorities, that's what we're calling a legal productivity tool. Right now, the the productivity tool for lawyers is email. That's it. It's (laughs) email and then some Microsoft Word checklists. That's what most lawyers are using to organize their materials and to collaborate. You left out Excel. (laughs) Excel. Excel scares a lot of lawyers. I know some some dip their toes in the waters. So the productivity tool market generally with collaboration tools like Slack and Teams, with project management tools like Asana and Monday, these are really helping 
organizations and teams manage sophisticated projects. Right. They're helping facilitate communication and organization and workflow, and they could absolutely help lawyers. So we as, a, as an industry, as a profession, need tools to help with those exact same needs, but to be built for our specific workflow. And that's what I think is lacking. There are tools on the market that can help with collaboration. There are tools in the market that can help with project management, but they're not built for lawyers. So our right. mission at Dashboard Legal was to build those tools for attorneys. So stitching that together and then building a specific legal tech product. I get it. Exactly. The thesis makes a ton of sense. So in terms of one thing you talked about, which is the tedium of legal work, right? I don't think anybody's like entirely thrilled when they get to become a lawyer. They find out that the work's a little bit boring, a little bit boxed in. They burn out really fast. So tools like yours and similar tools, I think, you kind of view it as a way for people to break from that tedium a little bit, do the more exciting legal work that they've always wanted to do, and make the profession like actually interesting. That's one pathway here, right? Yeah, certainly. Part of it is is reducing the administrative burden of what it takes to get organized. There's so much paper, there's so many communications, there's so many workflows, and having tools to just automate some of that can free us up for work that actually matters and requires us to think. The other part of it is the collaboration piece, which I think is really missing from the current conversation as well. Mm -hmm. When you look at what creates a better work product, what creates a more meaningful, cohesive team, it's open communication channels, it's collaboration, it's giving everybody on the team from senior partner all the way on down to junior partner, paralegal, and so on, an opportunity to jump in, to contribute, and to really feel like they're moving in the same direction. When you have siloed communication, siloed workflows and email chains, you ruin those opportunities. When you open them up with digital workspaces, you enable those opportunities. So it is about the team. It's about the administrative needs of today and helping that burden. And it's also about finding ways to improve that, that collaborative teamwork, uh, which has effects on, on productivity, on the bottom line, and on attorney happiness. Right. And that collaboration piece, I think, is important too, right? Because now we're living in a world where people have very distributed workforces, and that's not going away. So that's a yeah. key component to what you're thinking about as well, I'm sure, right? Like something like this is better suited to what I would describe as a more modern law practice. Absolutely. The hybrid workforce is the way of the future for law firms and, and our clients outside of law firms. And the ability for technology to bring a dispersed workforce together to develop those stronger connections, lawyers actually will work harder when they have those connections. They will create a better work product. And the priority today, you know, I think it should also be mentioned, the priority today for a lot of attorneys is the ability to have that flexible work-life balance. Yes. It, yeah. It's not Especially really- Especially younger attorneys, right? Exactly. Millennials care about that a lot. It's not that they're working less, mm -hmm. but the, the balance they want is that they can work from anywhere. And right. so that means that there's a mobile solution. They can do the work from their phone, they can do the work from their computer, they have these workspaces that don't tie them to an office. And if you're looking at ways to differentiate yourself to attract talent to really kind of build for that future hybrid workforce, digital workspaces are, are a really uh, important answer.
Yeah, and you need the technology to allow that to happen. And that collaboration and sharing tool is a key component for that. Absolutely, absolutely. And the question is, how do you get them to use it? <laughs> right, so I'll ask you, how do you get them to use it? <laughs> how do you get them to use it? That's the core Tasers, of our... are tasers involved? No, go ahead. <laughs> exactly, you lock them in a room and then you tell them, <laughs> go. <laughs> no, this is, that's, not, that's not how big law works. Um, <laughs> The way you get them to use it is, is you meet them where they are. They're not using these tools for a reason. And the reason is they're living in their inbox. We decided that if we could build productivity tools into the inbox, into that email experience, that UI, the UX, then we would have an opportunity to be a bridge from email-only workflow to a workflow that relies on email, it stays a part of the workflow, but also introduces these really powerful productivity solutions, internal chat, and project management checklist that could uh, slot right into their existing workflow. Yeah, absolutely. Lawyers love email. I don't see that going away for a while. <laughs> well, they hate email, but they won't leave well, it. Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a good point, and that's a good differentiation that you make there. I think that's excellently turned. I couldn't phrase it any better. <laughs> so I guess like part of this, too, for me is there's a little bit of process management involved here as well, right? And like law firms have not traditionally been very good at process management. So there's some education level involved here as well, right? Yeah, yeah. When you think about the closing of a deal, and I worked on M&A transactions, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm familiar with. Mm. You finish the deal, there's a lot of paper, you create a closing binder, and then it's, you, you, you put it in your bookshelf and then it's done. When you start a new deal, you're really starting with a blank slate. You're getting some precedent, maybe a few checklists. You're talking you know, to maybe colleagues to get some institutional knowledge, but you're really starting with a piecemeal approach with things all over the place. And you, you can't take advantage of that really valuable knowledge that's inside the firm already. So if you think about just a lightweight process management improvement of having a flexible checklist, which itemizes all the steps that went into getting from a to Z to getting it over the finish line and then taking that knowledge and applying it to the next one, you can improve processes and you can also see what needs improvement, see where you're adding value and really get the benefit of all that institutional knowledge in a way that just isn't happening right now. Right. Yeah, that's totally fair. So I think law firms are getting a little bit better at that, but it's coming along slow for sure. Yes. <laughs> and I think one of the points that you make there, which is key, is that like, lawyers are not great at pulling the information down from their own heads and utilizing it within the law firm environment, both with respect to talking to colleagues and talking to clients. Like for some reason, they're just very closed mouth about this stuff and they don't want to make others aware of what's happening. But that's one of the first steps I think they need to take. Now, the other piece of this is that when I talk to law firms about automation, process management, productivity improvements, kind of the stuff that you're talking about, like, mm -hmm. A lot of them have this aversion to becoming like a factory firm, mm. especially like smaller, mid-sized law firms. Mm -hmm. So they think that they're going to lose the personal touch. They think that they're going to lose what makes them a law firm. They think they're going to lose what they enjoy about practicing law. Do you view that to be true or no? No, I think I think that's I think that there's a there's a reluctance to changing something that's working. And lawyers see that their model's working. And so, um, you know, they, yeah. they, they don't see the impetus to change. But the, the reality is, is when you talk about productivity solutions 
and the administrative burden that it can alleviate, those are things that are not going to take away from where your lawyers are adding value. Lawyers are adding value by applying judgment to facts and law. And that's not going away. That's mm-hmm. the highest level application of our value. And the more we can attain that, the better product we're going to produce, the happier we are producing it. Yeah. And all of the administrative needs of running a litigation, of running a deal, take away from that. And so the, the automation, that eliminates the worst parts of the job. So any attorney that thinks it's going to replace them, I think that concern is misplaced. And on the collaboration end, what we found and what others have found, the Walters Kluwer Future Ready Survey, um, there's a great book by Heidi Gardner about smart collaboration, is that collaboration actually creates a happier attorney. They develop deeper connections with their colleagues. They feel more loyalty to the firm, to their team, to their project. And that actually creates a better work product as well. So everybody benefits from opening the channels. Everybody benefits from having a universal place to see the information. And yes, it's about reducing the administrative needs, but it's also about improving the way we work. And and I think it's really important. Right. And to be clear, I talked a bit about this in the monologue, is the robots are not coming to take your job as a lawyer, at least not for a long time. This is about implementing processes in a more cost-effective way, not having to utilize staff for that necessarily so everybody can upskill. That's the way I view it. That's right on. That's right on. Matt, this was fun. But this was only the first segment. That was Matt Rotenberg. He's the CEO of Dashboard Legal. And Matt, will be right back. We'll take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about what our sponsors can do for your law practice. Then, stay tuned for the rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. As the largest legal-only call center in the U.S., Alert Communications helps law firms and legal marketing agencies with new client intake. Alert captures and responds to all leads 24-7, 365 as an extension of your firm in both Spanish and English. Alert uses proven intake methods, customizing responses as needed, which earns the trust of clients and improves client retention. To find out how Alert can help your law office, call 866-827-5568 or visit alertcommunications.com slash LTN. Now more than ever, an effective marketing strategy is one of the most important things your law firm can have, and Scorpion can help. With nearly 20 years of experience serving the legal industry, Scorpion has proven methods to help you get the high-value cases you deserve. Join thousands of attorneys across the country who have turned to Scorpion for effective marketing and technology solutions. For a better way to grow your practice, visit scorpionlegal.com. Welcome back. We're here at the rear end of the legal toolkit, my favorite part of the show, the rump roast. It's a grab bag of short form topics, all of my choosing. Today, we're going to bring back our guest, Matt Rotenberg of Dashboard Legal to play a game with us. Matt, are you ready? Let the rump roast begin. (laughs) This is a new game. Okay. I'm using it myself. All right. I'm, I'm excited. It's called Balls Deep. We're going deep on questions about balls. (laughs) I'm gonna ask Matt lots of questions about balls. And it's his job to try to get as many of them correct as he can. Matt, has your legal training prepared you for this? Yes. (laughs) Great. You must have gone to a very interesting law school. All right. The the answer is it depends for every question. (laughs) 
Excellent. All right. Number one, what's the oldest brand of rugby ball dating back all the way to 1823? Um, Spalding. Spalding is a great guess, but it's actually called the Gilbert brand. So the rugby, a lot of the rugby balls, they have Gilbert on the side. So there was a company developed by a cobbler in 1823. His name was William Gilbert, and he was the first person to create rugby balls. Wow. So because this is an educational show, balls were hand-stitched in four panels and made with leather casings and pig bladders. It is the shape of the pig's bladder that is reputed to have given the rugby ball its distinctive oval shape, though balls of those days were more plum-shaped than oval. Continuing on from Wikipedia, in those early days, William's nephew, James, who was famed for his extraordinary lung power, inflated the balls. It actually blew these balls up <laughs> one by one. Now, there's one problem. If the pig was diseased, it was possible to develop lung diseases from blowing up the balls. Not good. In fact, hmm. the wife of a man named Richard Linden died from an infection caught from an infected pig's bladder. This spurred Linden in the mid-1880s to pioneer the rubber bladder, the brass hand pump inflator, and finally, the advent of shape standardization. That's probably more than you ever wanted to know about rugby balls. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> but it's a great it's a great little factoid. When I go out next, I can hey, I that's going to slay at the bar. With my knowledge. Yes, the oh, nice yeah. cocktail party. People are going to be loving that. <laughs> All right, that was a great guess. You ready for question number two? Let's go. On a standard soccer ball, how many hexagons and how many pentagons are present? I'm going to say 16 and 32. Oh my God, that's a great guess. All right. It's actually 12 pentagons and 20 hexagons. But okay. that was really okay. close, man. You're holding your own here for sure. <laughs> Appreciate it, Jared. All right. Question number three, the one we've all been waiting for. Matt, which animal has the biggest testicles by percentage of body weight? By percentage of body weight. <laughs> Now I'm thinking about a small animal. But... <laughs> oh, you're getting you're warm. You're getting warm. Am I? Um, <laughs> who's got? This is a tough one. But you're yeah, on the I'm right gonna... track. How about a bulldog? Oh, that's close. That's I was, a bulldog is a great guess. It's actually the tuberous bush cricket. Which... Tuberous bush cricket. <laughs> that was on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> I know you almost. That had was that. my second guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to attempt the Latin name here. It's Platycleus affinis. So its testicles actually account for 14% of his body weight. If the same proportion were applied to a man, his testicles would weigh the equivalent of six bags of sugar each. How could you even walk at that point? So I'm reading from a Guardian article. Dr. Kareem Vahed, a behavioral ecologist at Derby, led the study, and he said, these really are quite phenomenal testes. <clears throat> That's what she said. They take up nearly the whole of the bush cricket's abdomen. It just shows how competitive reproduction is for some species. Now, because I know everybody is dying to know, if we're talking about sheer weight of testicles, irrespective of relation to body size, the Atlantic right whale is the champion. Believe it or not, mm. its testicles weigh literally a ton, 2,000 pounds when combined. And to that I wow. say, Moby Dick indeed. Actually, Moby Dick was a sperm whale. Okay, I'll stop now. Matt, question number four. In 1971, Alan Shepard, the commander of Apollo 14, hit two golf balls with a makeshift club from the surface of the moon. Sounds like a pretty cool thing to do. 
Shepard estimated yeah. that his best shot of the two traveled 200 yards. But with recent video analysis, they know exactly how far the second shot traveled. How far did his second shot actually go? I'll say 100 yards. Oh, man, another great guess. 40 yards. 40 yards. Good guess, though. Okay, so we know how he plays golf. <laughs> right. <laughs> so just to give you a little bit more context from astronomy.com, image specialist Andy Saunders recently analyzed the stills taken by the astronauts with their Hasselblad cameras, as well as video from the lunar ascent module as it lifted off from the surface. Saunders managed to identify not only Shepard's golf balls, but also the footprints from his stance and even his divots. By comparing these to more recent satellite images from NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, Saunders was able to measure the distance on Shepard's second shot. The result, that paltry 40 yards, still not bad for a one-handed bunker shot taken while wearing a bulky space suit in weak gravity. I call those excuses. I wow. don't know. I can't believe they measured that. And, and lawyers are still dragging and dropping emails. <laughs> Right. That's a perfect yep. callback. All right, Matt, you've been great. We got one question left. This is your chance to redeem yourself. Although guesses have been- <laughs> I gotta get one here. I gotta get guesses one. Guesses have been much better than I thought. All right. I'm hoping this one's a softball. No pun intended. Which artist wrote these lyrics? Well, I'm rather upper class high society. God's gift to ballroom notoriety. And I always fill my ballroom. The event is never small. The social pages say I've got the biggest balls of all. Kanye West? Ah, ACDC. <laughs> <laughs> That's the song Big Balls from their 1976 album, oh, Dirty man. D's Done Dirt Sheet. Man, this was really hard. I kind of set you up, and now I feel bad. Can you yeah, give me your 30-second review? This was a rump roast, indeed. 30-second <laughs> review of this podcast? No, well, well, yeah. The rump roast was, was the strangest, strangest part I've ever been a part of, but I had a good time with you, Jared. <laughs> good. That's what we go for. That's the aim. Now, 30 seconds. I know you've been watching Loki on Disney+, Plus, which yes. is awesome. I love that show as well. You want to give us Great. your 30-second review of Loki because I was such a dick for the last 10 minutes? <laughs> I would say um, Loki was a very pleasant surprise. I went in with some pretty low expectations, but it, it blew it out of the water. It's a really, it's a tightly crafted show, some excellent kind of meta concepts, great execution. I mean, um, I'm loving Loki and looking forward to seeing the, the season finale. So hopefully they, hopefully Disney retweets this podcast now. Oh, they always uh, do every episode. No. Okay, good. Matt, <laughs> thank you. You were amazing. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jared. It was great. It was great being with you here. And, um, you know, I'll just say that I want to take a second to appreciate what you do for the legal tech community and yeah. the law community. You were extremely open when I was just, you know, a few weeks into this and, and you replied to my email and chatted with me when I had no idea what was going on. And, and it really meant a lot and, and helped me start this, this really, um, purposeful driven journey that I'm on. Oh, thank That's really kind of you to say. I appreciate it. Now I feel even worse about what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I'm asking you the rump roast questions. I will come Jared. on your podcast. You ask me whatever questions you want. <laughs> All right. Now, for those of you listening in Blue Ball Village, Maryland, where it's never a Christmas, I suppose, our Spotify playlist for this week's show is all about second bananas. That's right. In honor of Ringo Starr's 81st birthday a couple weeks back, we're going to spotlight the lesser members of famous groups. But that's enough talk about balls and bananas, because as we wrap up the show, the music you're hearing right now is from No Second Banana. 
This is Normal People by M.O.K. Now, you might know M.O.K. better as today's guest, Matt Rotenberg. You can find a link to his album, Kids Table, in the show notes for this episode on Legal Talk Network website. So suck it, Owl City. Oh, yeah, you can also learn more about Matt's email productivity software, Dashboard Legal, at dashboardlegal.com. Sadly, we've run out of time, and I won't be able to host a telethon for impoverished podcast hosts today. I guess those guys are fucked. That'll do it for another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast, where I'm still looking for a producer for my animated series-slash-documentary hybrid, Liger King. Call me.
Thank you.